Let's open in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time to gather together, to hear from your word, to be encouraged, to worship you, and to fellowship. Uh, We pray that you would um, equip us with knowledge, Lord, that you would prepare us and equip us for the Christian life, Lord. We pray that you'd help us to understand your word deeper, to understand sin deeper, and to understand grace deeper. Uh, We pray that you'd bless this message and you'd open our eyes and ears. And we thank you for your grace and amen. So today we are, start, we are continuing a series called How to Be Legalistic. Now I know you're all thinking, Josiah, that's exactly what I needed to know. <laughs> Don't worry, the, the title is as satirical as that response. <laughs> the term legalism has become a bit of a catch-all term for almost any type of unhealthy relationship with the law, you know, besides rebellion. Um, but legalism is a bit of a catch-all term. Like what one person says, means when they say legalism is not the same as what another person says when they, or means when they say legalism. So in this series, we're actually going to address four different problems that could each be considered legalism. And each one's going to get its own sermon. So last week, we talked about believing that the law will justify you. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about the belief that separation will sanctify you. Uh, There's also the issue of holding standards that God doesn't command. And then lastly, we'll talk about caring about God's commands more than God does. Now, unfortunately, legalism has a tendency to creep in or to sneak into our thoughts and attitudes, often in small ways and often without us noticing. This is like a real problem. This is why there's so much legalism in the church. No one is knowingly legalistic. Like, no one's, going to list, no one's going to look for a series titled How to Be Legalistic because that's actually what they're looking for. <laughs> Everyone thinks they're not legalistic. Everybody. So the fact that you think you're not legalistic is not sufficient reason to continue thinking that you're not legalistic. We probably all have bits, of pieces, bits and pieces of legalism in our thoughts and attitudes in various places. So the goal of this series is to help you identify legalism in your own thoughts and attitudes and to help you overcome it. So again, today's sermon is titled, Believing That Separation Will Sanctify You. So what do I mean by believing that separation will sanctify you? Well, first let me uh, explain what I mean by sanctify. Sanctify or sanctification can refer to a number of things, but most Christians today use it to refer to growth in Christ, and that's how I'm using it today, even though there might be a number of things that sanctification could refer to, but I'm using it to refer to growing as a Christian or growing in your character. And by separation, I mean separation from the world. So... One of the, I guess I'm kind of talking about the idea that mere separation from the world will cause you to grow as a Christian. That is a problematic belief, and we'll get into why. Or the idea that avoiding worldly influence is the primary means of growing as a Christian. Note the word primary. That is a dangerous idea and an inaccurate idea. You know what? These kinds of ideas are very common. The idea, if I could just get away from the world, I'd live a godly life. Or, if I could just get away from worldly music and worldly TV shows and worldly video games, I would live a godly life. But those ideas are unbiblical and even dangerous. 
but also because I said, if only, or if I could just. The emphasis is wrong, but we'll get, in, we'll get into that. I also want to clarify what I don't mean, since I'm talking, I'm speaking against the belief that separation will sanctify you. I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't have boundaries. You know, we are to flee from sin. Let's look at 2 Timothy 2, verse 22. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, and love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And we're we're also told to not be unequally yoked with non-believers. Let's look at Second Corinthians sixteen. I mean, six, verse fourteen. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? So, you know, you sh- if you're a believer, you shouldn't marry an unbeliever. And I-, I probably would take it as far as to, like, not have a 50-50 business ownership with a non-believer. But that's, that might be a personal interpretation of that. Um, but I'm not saying you shouldn't have boundaries. But the belief that separation will sanctify you or that mere separation from the world is going to cause you to grow as a Christian is an incorrect belief. And the idea that avoiding the world is the primary means to grow as a Christian is a dangerous belief. So why is that a problem? Why is this belief that separation will sanctify you a problem? Uh, The first reason it's a problem is that it involves a shallow understanding of sin. I would say it necessitates a shallow understanding of sin because it necessitates the idea that sin is mostly something outside of you. If avoiding the world is going to cause you to grow as a Christian, then sin is out in the world but not in you. If sin is mostly inside of your heart, then merely getting away from worldly influence won't be enough to make you live a godly life because your heart is still in you. Which means the idea that merely getting away from worldly influence will be enough to live godly necessarily implies that sin is mostly a problem outside of you. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Let's look at some passages that show that that is not what the Bible teaches. Let's look at Mark 7, verses 20 through 23. And Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within. They defile a person. Jesus didn't say all these things come from the TV and infect your children. He said all these things come from within. Again, we need to have boundaries, but it's just so easy to start thinking that avoiding the world is the primary means to growing or to living godly, and that's a dangerous thought. We really don't want to believe that sin is mostly outside of us. Let's also look at Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
Let's also look at James 1, 13, verse 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, brings forth death. So we we see from the scripture that sin is mostly a problem inside of you. Sin outside of you is a problem. You know, worldly influence is something you have to be careful about. We, We do have to be unstained by the world. But sin is primarily inside of you, and to think otherwise is dangerous. It's dangerous because the idea that sin is mostly outside of you is only a few steps away from the idea that deep down, you're really a good person. And we saw last week how dangerous an idea that is. It's antithetical to the gospel. The idea that deep down, you're really a good person on your own is only a few steps away from the idea that you can, because of how well you obey God, be righteous before God. And that's only one step away from the idea that you are righteous before God because of how well you've obeyed God. And that's a damnable idea. So the idea that sin is mostly outside of us, mostly out there in the world, is a real problem. It's unbiblical and it's dangerous. The other reason um, I think the idea that separation is what will sanctify you as a problem is because it, it often comes with the idea that certain aspects of creation are inherently bad. Like the idea that food is bad or sex is bad or alcohol is bad or music is bad in and of themselves. But Paul says that nothing is bad in and of itself. Only how we use things can be bad. Let's look at Romans 14 verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. God made creation good, so no aspect of creation is inherently bad or bad in and of itself. Let's look at Genesis 1, verse 31. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and morning, the sixth day. The world is fallen, but things that are fallen are redeemable. The world is still God's creation, and nothing in God's creation is inherently bad. Even though we do have the potential to misuse things, because that's what sin does. It perverts and it twists. Another issue with the idea that separation is what's going to sanctify you, is that it usually involves a shallow view of God's plans for redemption. It usually involves the idea that we should avoid the world and worldly people. But the Bible never tells us to avoid the world. Contrary, or on the contrary to that, uh, God wants to redeem the world, and he wants us to be involved and engaged in that work of redemption. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 and 19. All this comes from God, 
who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. God is really into this redeeming the world thing, and he has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. We are not to avoid the world. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 11. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral people of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an adulterer or reviler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So we do need to not be unequally yoked, and we do need to be careful how we let others influence us, but that doesn't mean we should avoid non-Christians who are blatantly sinful. When the Corinthians started to get the idea that Paul wanted them to avoid sexually immoral non-Christians, Paul corrected them and said, that's not what I want. That's not what I'm talking about. Because we need to be reaching out to non-Christians. Jesus associated with blatantly sinful non-Christians. A lot. Let's look at Mark 2, verses 16 and 17. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We need to have this idea thoroughly in our minds. You know, we are not to avoid the world. God wants to redeem the world. This somewhat reminds me of a testimony I heard of once. So I once heard of a testimony of a pastor's wife uh, who would go to strip clubs and share the gospel with the strippers. And she developed an effective ministry there. But sadly, some people were bothered by that, just like the Pharisees were bothered by Jesus eating with sinners. But does that idea bother you of a pastor's wife going to a strip club to share the gospel with strippers? It shouldn't. You don't deserve the gospel any more than they do, and your life isn't more important than theirs. When Paul said that there's no distinction because all have fallen short of the glory of God, he meant it. God has major plans for redemption. God wants to redeem sinners. God wants to redeem culture. God wants to redeem creation. And we need to have a deep view of his plans for redemption, an accurate view, a precise view, not a shallow view of his plans for redemption. So in what ways does this belief that sanctification, uh, that separation is what sanctifies us creep in? Because, you know, the whole point of this series is that 
legalism is constantly trying to sneak into our thoughts and attitudes, and we need to learn to be aware of it and to fight against it. Uh, there's four ways, I think, that I wrote down that I can think of that this belief kind of creeps into our thoughts and attitudes. The first one, which we somewhat briefly talked about, is thinking that mere avoidance will sanctify us. We're thinking that mere avoidance will cause us to grow in Christ. But again, that's an unbiblical idea, and it won't, because the problem isn't primarily out in the world. Primarily, the problem is in your heart. Let's look at Romans 7, 18 and 19. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. And I think one way that this tends to creep into our thinking is it becomes really easy to think about this stuff about our kids when parenting because we are responsible to protect our kids in a certain measure from bad influences. That is our responsibility. But it, sometimes we can get so wrapped up in it that we that we don't see the other priorities, like making sure our kids understand the gospel. You know, as far as the well-being of your kids is concerned, the fact that the problem is filled with pornography and drugs and murder is a much smaller problem than that their hearts are self-deceiving and wicked. They're not going to be condemned for the sinful things that happen outside of them. But if they avoid all worldly influence but their heart never gets redeemed by the gospel, they're in much bigger trouble than, you know, all the problems in the world, per se. You should protect your child from bad influences, but don't let it become a larger practical issue in your mind than them deeply understanding the gospel. And that's an easy mistake to fall into without realizing it. It's important to keep priorities in order. Don't let you, know, you should protect your child from bad influences, but don't let it become something you think about more often than you think about how can I make sure my child knows the gospel well? How can I make sure they really grasp it in their heart? Do they grasp it in their heart? We, yeah, we need to think about that. We need to keep our priorities straight. So how can we fight this idea uh, that mere avoidance will sanctify us. Well, first off, we have to, like I said, we have to understand that the problem is in the heart. We also have to remember that Christian growth and godly living, we have to know what causes those things, because mere avoidance of the world is not the cause of those things. Christian growth and godly living are primarily the result of supernaturally empowered effort. They're primarily the result of the means of grace and cooperating with them. And that's how the whole Christian life works. Let's look at Colossians 1 verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, all God's energy, that he powerfully works within me. The primary means to Christian growth isn't avoiding the world. It's reliance on God. It's reliance on the word and the spirit and the church. It's getting empowerment from the one who has all power. 
without supernatural empowerment, you won't have any Christian growth or any sincere godly living. Let's look at Galatians 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He didn't say, stop watching TV and listening to music, and then you won't carry out the desire of the flesh. It's fallen man's nature to think that making strict rules will lead to godly living, but that's just man's foolish pride. Let's look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. You have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep following the rules of the world, such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate, deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. You know, as humans, one of the things we struggle with is pride. And one of the outworkings of pride is if I'm just determined enough and I, I make these rules and I follow them, I'll live a godly life. You have no hope of living a godly life apart from the Holy Spirit and apart from the Scriptures. And you need the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures and the church. So Christian growth is primarily the result of relying on God and cooperating with the means of grace. It is not primarily the result of avoiding certain people in certain places and certain media. Even though we ought to have boundaries. We have to understand what the primary cause is. The primary cause of Christian growth is the means of grace. Because we don't have the power to grow in and of ourselves. But if mere avoidance, was the pri- avoidance of the world was the primary cause of growth, that would mean we do have the power to grow in ourselves. So the second way we let this belief or this idea sneak into our thoughts and attitudes, this idea that separation is what sanctifies us, is reducing godliness to the avoidance of worldly behaviors. You know, this is another area where legalism tries to sneak into our thinking. If when you think of what it means to be godly, to be a godly person, the first thing that comes to mind is someone who doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, and doesn't cuss, you have an unbiblically shallow view of godliness and an unbiblically shallow view of sin. Drunkenness is bad and cursing people is bad. But if that's the main thing you think of when you think of godliness, you're missing the bigger picture. Let's look at Matthew 23, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. There's something we have to notice here. Jesus considered some of God's commands as greater or more weightier than others. And we need to learn to see it how he sees it. Because Jesus wasn't wrong. 
Jesus considers some of God's commands to be greater or more weighty than others, and we need to learn to see it how he sees it. You know, he says quite clearly that the two greatest commands are to love God and to love one another. Let's look at Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Again, all of God's commandments are important, but we do need to realize that he considers some greater than others. And if we're going to understand godliness correctly, we need to see it how he sees it. Whether or not someone struggles uh, with an addiction to something isn't as big of a deal as whether or not they love God even though it is a big deal. But the Pharisees, they didn't quite get this. They thought that your external behavior is the measure of your godliness, and they had no regard for whether or not a person really loved God. And Jesus kept rebuking them for that. A person who struggles with a shameful, sinful addiction, but genuinely loves God and is therefore sincerely seeking to overcome that addiction, is a spiritually healthier person than someone who is, you know, clean-cut and respectable and doesn't struggle with any addictions, but also cares more about their pride and their comfort than they care about God. That person, the person struggling with the addiction is in a spiritually healthier place, and I really mean that. We need to get this on a deep level. Let's look at Luke 7, verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. He went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who was touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, I love how Jesus answers the thoughts that are happening in this guy's head. <laughs> Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the moment that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. 
Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, I want to point something out. The Pharisee was probably thinking to himself, I've never cheated on my spouse like this woman has, or I've never, I don't live a sinful lifestyle like hers. And that Pharisee probably thought he was in a spiritually healthier place than this woman. But Jesus was like, no, you're greatly mistaken. She's in a spiritually healthier place than you are. She loves me and my father, and you don't. We need to learn to see the weight of different aspects of godliness. We need to actually think and see life uh, like loving God is the most important. And loving God should always lead to practical outworkings of obedience, but you can have mere external behavior without loving God. We need to realize that you can have good external behavior without loving God, and we need to realize that between the two, loving God is more important. Not that you shouldn't pursue both. The second thing I have to say about this, this idea of why it's wrong to reduce godliness to the mere avoidance of worldly behaviors is that God isn't only concerned with behavior. He's concerned with the heart, maybe even more so than with behavior. Though I'm not totally sure about that, but maybe even more so. Let's look at Matthew 15, verses 8 and 9. Jesus said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Let's, also, let's look at some other passages where Jesus talks about how much he cares about people's hearts, not just their external behavior. Let's look at the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus isn't just concerned with whether or not you actually murdered your neighbor. He's concerned with whether or not you love your neighbor. In your heart, not just whether you externally act like you do. It's easy to act like you love people whom you don't really love, but Jesus is concerned about your heart. Let's look at also Matthew 5, verses 27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Mere external behavior isn't enough. God is concerned with the heart. And since God is not merely concerned with external behavior, and maybe even more so is concerned with the heart, if your view of godliness is primarily about external behavior or what you avoid, then it's unbiblically shallow. The 
The third reason why I would say reducing godliness to the avoidance of worldly behaviors is an issue. I would say godliness is more about what you do than what you avoid. Let's look at James 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So again, I'm not saying that we don't need to keep ourselves unstained. We definitely need to keep ourselves unstained from the world. But that does not equal avoiding the world. I also want to point out that before he mentions that, the first thing he says is about action, not about inaction. The first thing he says is about caring for others, visiting widows and orphans in their affliction. If your sense of what godliness is is more about what to avoid than what to pursue, then you're looking at godliness wrong. And... um, yeah, again, also note that he didn't say to avoid the world or to retreat from it or to disengage with it. He said to be unstained by it. And like we just looked at, the two greatest commands aren't about what to avoid, they're about what to pursue. Pursuing the pleasure of God and pursuing the well-being of others. The fourth reason why reducing godliness to the mere avoidance of worldly behaviors is an issue is because our issue with sin is not mainly about bad behavior. It's mainly about the fact that we constantly struggle with making idols out of good things. That is the main struggle with sin. You know, the Pharisees avoided a lot of bad behaviors, but they made idols out of everything they touched. They cared about money more than God. They cared about uh, comfort more than God. Caring about your reputation is biblical. Solomon said that having a good reputation is a good thing. They cared, but they cared about their reputation more than God, and they cared about it more than loving others. Our main issue with sin isn't about bad external behavior. It's about the fact that we're constantly struggling with making idols out of good things. And it's easy to place good things as more important than God or more important than others. Food is a good thing, but you can easily struggle with making it more important than God. Ministries are good things, but many godly people struggle with their ministry becoming more important than their relationship with God. Your family is a great thing, but it can be easy to get so wrapped up in the lives of your kids that you start to neglect your relationship with God. You know, it's also very easy to to make an idol out of a good thing by making that good thing more important than loving others. You know, that happens with ministries too. People with ministries, sometimes start to uh, neglect loving their kids and their spouse because of it. And that can happen with your family. You can become so wrapped up in your family that you neglect other Christians who you should be serving or unbelievers. Anything, any good thing can be made into an idol. Anything. And we struggle with it a lot. And that is the main issue of sin. Adam and Eve in the garden desired the 
the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, because it looks good, and because it was food, and because it gave knowledge. All those things are good things, but they started to care about them more than about God. Their problem was not mainly about bad behavior. Their problem was making idols out of good things. And that is the main issue with sin. So we, we need to not reduce godliness to the mere avoidance of worldly behavior. That is a, a terribly shallow view of godliness and a shallow view of sin. So what are the other ways that we let this belief that sanctification is what I mean that separation is what sanctifies us. What's another way we let that creep into our thoughts and attitudes? Even though we already briefly talked about this, seeing the world as something to be avoided rather than something to be redeemed. You know, that subtly sometimes sneaks into our attitudes especially, even if we don't think it consciously. You can especially... I mean, you can just easily get so wrapped up in trying to avoid worldly influence, which you, you should do. You can get so wrapped up in it, though, that you neglect your responsibility to do outreach and to be engaged in the work of redemption. It's very easy to let that subtly happen without ever consciously thinking that the world is something to be avoided more than it's something to be redeemed. It's very easy to let that happen. but the world is something to be redeemed more than something to be avoided. Mm -hmm. Like we looked at earlier, Paul rebuked the Corinthians for thinking that they were supposed to avoid the sexually immoral people of the world. They thought that they should avoid non-Christians who are sexually immoral, and Paul rebuked them for it. He corrected them. And like we saw earlier, Jesus ate with sinners because he was concerned with them coming to Christ. He came not to save the righteous, but to save sinners. God wants Christians to be involved in redeeming the world. We need to see the world as something to be redeemed, not something to be avoided. The last way that we let this idea that separation is what sanctifies us Uh, kind of infect our thoughts and attitudes, is setting boundaries that go too far. Uh, There's two boundaries I'm going to talk about that sometimes we set that go too far. And again, Christians should have boundaries. We shouldn't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, and you do need to be careful what you allow to influence you. But sometimes we set boundaries that go too far. The first one I'll talk about is the idea that we shouldn't have any friends who are non-Christians. That's basically denying the Great Commission, and that is the opposite of what Jesus did. But that's something that a lot of Christians eventually begin to subtly think. I'm not sure they get to the point where they consciously think it, but they get to the point where they kind of live it out. A lot of Christians get there. You know, legalism is subtle, and it sneaks into our thoughts and attitudes, and we need to be on the watch for it. A lot of Christians seem to get to the place where they, they kind of feel like they shouldn't really be friends with non-Christians. And that's, a, on some level, a denial of the Great Commission. 
Plus there's, you know, what, what Paul said that we already looked at. Another boundary that some Christians set that I would say is going too far is the idea, let's not consume any secular media. So there's two problems with that idea. Um, first off, we need to stop making a divide between the secular and the spiritual. That idea comes from Gnosticism, or the idea that the spiritual is good, but the physical is bad. That is heresy. God made the world, and it was a very physical place, and he said it was very good. God made a world filled with work and with everyday life and with things to do other than only reading your Bible. And he was like, this is very good. God created the body and the spirit, and both of them are good. And that means the things that God made them for are also good. And God made the body for work and for relationships and for everyday life. Not just sitting in your closet and reading your Bible. You should do that, but that should not be the only thing you do. And you shouldn't think of the rest of life as lesser. Because God created all of it and he made it all very good. God wants you to have devotions, and he also wants you to work a normal job and do normal things. And something I would say is an outworking of that. So music and other forms of art are just forms of expressing thoughts and feelings. That's what music and art is. They're forms of expressing thoughts and feelings. And it isn't wrong to have thoughts and feelings about day-to-day areas of life. In fact, I would say it would be wrong not to. If you have a job and you don't think about your job and you don't care about your job, you are a bad worker. And that is sinful. You are, you are basically commanded for what it's worth to have thoughts and feelings about everyday, normal, day-to-day life. Not just about God and your devotions. Being a Christian who enjoys or who makes music and art about everyday life should be as normal as a Christian who has thoughts and feelings about everyday life. And that should be every Christian. We need to stop having this divide between the secular and the spiritual. It's wrong. Another way or reason behind the idea that Christians shouldn't consume secular media is the idea that media made by non-Christians is bad by dint of being made by non-Christians. But I'd say that's also an unbiblical thought, moreover, and a logically inconsistent thought. Most of the food you eat was made by non-Christians, but that is not a good reason for you to stop eating. Amen. We need to understand that non-Christians can still make good things just like Christians can still make bad things. Yep. Who knows a bad thing that was made by a Christian? <laughs> there, there are plenty of bad things that are made by Christians <laughs> and there's good things that are made by non-Christians there's a, a Tim Keller quote kind of about the related to this that I really like uh, Tim Keller said in his book uh, Every Good Endeavor properly understood The doctrine of sin means that believers are never as good as our true worldview should make us. Similarly, the doctrine of grace means that unbelievers are never as messed up as their false worldview should make them. 
And that reality affects the media and products that we make. There's no point in avoiding certain pieces of media or certain products just because it was made by a non-Christian. That idea expresses a shallow view of sin and a shallow view of common grace. Because God works through non-believers to some degree. One of the things God wants to do is to keep you alive. One of the ways he does that is with food. Most of that food is food he provided to you through a non-believer. You don't grow your own crops and you don't harvest your own crops. You live in Dayton. And I'm, I'm glad I live in Dayton. But, um, you know, that would be an absurd amount of work for one person to do. To be self-sustaining. So, we shouldn't avoid things just because they were made by non-Christians. We also shouldn't have this divide between the secular and the spiritual. So setting boundaries that go too far is another way that we let this idea, this incorrect idea that separation is what sanctifies us, creep in. And we need to avoid that. So in conclusion, legalism is always trying to creep into our thoughts and attitudes, and we need to be on guard against it. That's going to be a theme in this series, and I, I want us to all be well aware of that. Legalistic thoughts... Legalistic ideas are always subtly trying to sneak into your thoughts and attitudes, and you need to be on guard against them. Secondly, we need to understand sin is something within us. Sin is not mainly something outside of us. Our sin is mostly a problem with our hearts. It is not mostly a problem that comes from outside. And the idea that it's mostly outside of us is a dangerous idea because it's only a few steps away from missing the gospel. And lastly, we need to understand God's redemptive plans for the world. The world isn't to be avoided, it's to be engaged with because God wants to redeem it. God wants to redeem people, God wants to redeem culture, God wants to redeem all of creation. And he wants us to be involved in that. So let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you that you do want to use us uh, for the redemption of the world. Thank you that your grace for us and for unbelievers is so large, Lord. We pray that you would open our eyes to see the depths of our sin and to see the depths of your grace, Lord. We pray that we'd have balanced, accurate, and precise thoughts about those areas, Lord. We pray that you would uh, help us to be more engaged and more diligent about the redemption of the world and also more wise and especially more reliant on you. We pray that you would mightily use us and that you would help us to grow. And amen. amen. Today's communion meditation is called Real Faith Shows Itself. Let's look at 1 Timothy 5 verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's, that's pretty strong. That's pretty serious. But throughout the Bible, we see that real faith, because there's real faith and there's pseudo-faith, real faith always shows itself. The same ideas throughout 1 John, especially. Let's look at 1 John 3, verse 10. By this it is evident, those who are children of God and who are children of the devil... Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 
The Bible is very clear that you can only be saved through faith and that good works cannot contribute in any measure whatsoever. But it's also very clear that if a person has true faith, if they actually trust God in their heart, it's going to show itself. They're going to actually put God first. They won't be perfect and they'll still struggle with sin, but they'll be genuinely seeking to obey God in every area of life. Let's praise him and thank him as we come to the table.